It's Film Suck with Evgeny Akovda and Eileen Jones. And today we're talking about the new Netflix film Mank, um, which is directed by David Fincher. And it's about the screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz and the fight for screenwriting credit for with Orson Welles for um, Citizen Kane. So let's plunge into to Mank. What did you think, Evgenia? <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I'm no specialist on that. I think it's uh, your. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely you so too much, much more in my area, if anything. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's almost like <laughs> asking me. <laughs> but how did you feel about it? Just as a movie, if you just had to talk about but it. But I just feel like very much like some kind of ki- kindergarten <laughs> <laughs> level of my knowledge around all this. Um, I mean, I obviously watched Citizen Kane a few times. I mean, overall, I don't know. It really surprised me. It's um, formal, formally, I guess. It tried to do almost like 1940s movies. Yes, right? tried very hard. <laughs> very hard. And, and you know, it always looks, I don't know, obviously it's a Fincher's decision and Fincher is clearly, you know, a very kind of OCD director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, overall, I don't know what I think about this kind of basically citizen mank yeah. kind of approach to this. Mm, that's aesthetically and formally. Mm-hmm. Um, and the content wise, well, that's, really interested me obviously i got deep into reading about the story and Mm -hmm. then why the hell the movie was um for so long and some kind of not a limbo but i think he's trying he was trying to make it for a very long time while his Mm -hmm. dad even was alive yes his dad Uh, screenplay in the 90s and so yeah yeah and 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 then he died i think early uh, something like 2002 2003 if Mm -hmm. i'm not mistaken and so i don't know there's a whole weird like family affair around it which is kind of interesting ultimately after watching this film and i don't really know why it has to exist to be honest (laughs) i don't know if it's a bit too rude but okay what do you (laughs) what do you think oh i hated it <laughs> I thought it was atrocious. Just atrocious. I was beating by the bush. I was like, I don't know. Should it exist? Well, but I think it really does make a difference. Like how much you know, how little you know, and and mm-hmm. and you're you're saying, well, I didn't know anything, but I know too much, you know, and and so I also might be an odd. I I, I was watching, going, who's supposed to like this? Okay, is it? Is it because I'm so into this stuff that I didn't like it maybe for partly for that reason. I mean, partly as a film, I just thought all of his choices were hideous failures. Story-wise, like, are you partial? I just want to, because uh, I never asked you, are you partial to the whole, like, side of Wells versus Mank and Pauline Kael, I guess, narrative? Uh, do you, Did you have a particular... I don't have a side because it seems so silly. I mean, okay. it's been documented, but, you know... It's been so much written about since. I'll just give a brief back history for people who don't know. Okay. Herman Mankiewicz, who for, we'll get into the reasons why he always needed money, even though he's very successful as a screenwriter, took a job that was supposed to just pay him, I think, 10 grand to write Citizen, you know, what becomes Citizen Kane. He writes a mammoth first draft, 300 plus pages. That's the foundation of Citizen Kane. And then it gets passed on to Orson Welles and Orson Welles does things to it. And then it gets to be Citizen Kane. Okay. Um, At a certain point, though, Mankiewicz realizes it might be um, his best work or among his best work. And he decides and he's, you know, his career is in the dumps Mm -hmm. and he decides he wants credit. So there's an initial (laughs) fight between Welles and Mankiewicz for screenwriting credit Mm because Welles essentially just wanted credit. That was the deal. Mankiewicz was going to silently write it and not take any credit. Um, That's actually pretty nasty to begin with. I didn't (laughs) like, well, so right from the get go, you're like, what's your problem, man? And later, you know, he apparently lies for someone who, who did a deep dive into the, the various drafts of Citizen Kane. Apparently when defending his authorship, Mm -hmm. Wells claimed that at the same time Mankiewicz was writing a first draft, he was writing an alternative first draft. Oh, but that's actually proven wrong from like, right? It's proven totally wrong. According to the, to someone who went through all the drafts, he said there is no evidence, but he clearly it was part of him trying to claim that he always was there at the beginning, when, mm-hmm. which, which is weird because apparently they did get together and write hundreds of pages of notes together, you know, just in talking. It wasn't a, okay. it wasn't a draft, but supposedly they did get together and write a bunch of notes that then became the, the draft, but whatever. So why, you know, Orson Welles wants to be presumably, you know, he wants total authorship. He wants to, and I guess he doesn't want to endanger what he's promised RKO, which is that he's this wunderkind, which everyone thought he was, mm-hmm. um, and that he would have total, total 
authorship over practically everything. Okay. You want it to be an auteur or like perceived yes. as one. Yes. The biggest auteur ever because, you know, mm-hmm. why do you need credit for that many? You know, it's, it's kind of an amazing. Though he does give, it's weird. Wells is odd. He leaps all over the place. He gives, he gives co-directing credit to his cinematographer, Greg Toland, who admittedly is a genius. But I mean, that's. That's interesting. <laughs> but anyway, never mind. 1971, Paul, the critic Pauline Kael writes a famous 50,000-word polemic called Raising Cain, in which she she hates auteur theory, by the way. Always uh, absolutely against it. <laughs> Why? And Oh, she just thought it was idiotic. Um, and, you know, some of the grounds included it's such a collaborative process, especially Hollywood filmmaking, that it's an insane thing to try to apply such a theory to Hollywood movies. You, you just, you just whiting out all the other people who are involved and B, why do you want her? One of her main, more interesting claims is why do we want to privilege as, you know, auteur theorists tended to do um, these directors who do something that's similar enough that you can recognize just from shots and things. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like Hitchcock say, you know, that there's a kind of, directorial signature on everything. And she said, well, what about John Huston? Her, that was her example of someone mm-hmm. who every film was different and the style was dictated by the content and all this other stuff. And he wasn't trying to imprint himself on it. And she would say, but you know, he's a great director. Why are we privileging the idea that if you do the same thing over and over again, so that everyone can tell it's you that that's a good thing <laughs> anyway. So she had a very long, many arguments about why auteur theory was idiotic. And she of course went for citizen Kane. Cause it's one of the ultimate, supposed auteur pieces. Anyway, Pauline Kael writes this long, super controversial polemic on behalf of Mankiewicz, saying Mankiewicz deserves, you know, she she really goes at it aggressively, saying he really is the author. And so Peter Bogdanovich, um, sort of in collaboration with Orson Welles, writes something called, what is it called? The Cain Mutiny in response, Mm -hmm. arguing back that that's insane and they refute all her different, you know, they find all sorts of ways to demonstrate. You know, it seems to me, you know, you hear enough of this and you're like, isn't it simple enough to say Mankiewicz writes a 300 page draft? Obviously, that's going to be longer than you have to film. Wells takes it, does all sorts of things with it. And also has, you know, it's shared, it's shared authorship. I don't know why that that's a hard one, but, but anyway, but it's because people with various agendas are really in there fighting it out. Um, who gets credit? They both get credit. And indeed they, they, together they win an Oscar for best screenplay, which is the only Oscar that, um, Citizen Kane wins. Um, the, the movie Mank is very much on the Mankiewicz side. Um, so it really does seem to be like doing things to try to demonstrate um, that Mankiewicz is the true, in some somehow in quotes, author of Citizen Kane. And one of the ways they do that, there's a big, long, in fact, interminable seeming scene, a big dinner banquet scene where, you know, it's supposedly showing Mankiewicz telling a version of the story of Citizen Kane years before. He ever gets hired by Wells. It's clearly there in part to demonstrate that he was, you know, the that the ideas for Citizen Kane were really his and were percolating long before he ever got assigned mm-hmm. the job. Okay, um, but again, e- it's easy enough to refute by saying, "But yeah, but Wells did, and Wells is the director and had all, and he he's the one who gets this mammoth first draft and does things to it." So it just seems like a weird claim um, to insist on. Right, and and when I started reading about that um, kind of uh, scene in the film, suppose uh, where he also like uh, basically parallels uh, hers to Don Quixote and all that. That's supposedly fully invented. I was like, oh yeah, you know, all those articles about what's true, what's not. That Jack Fincher, for some reason, I don't know, he he was clearly partial. I don't know why he even cared. Pro screenwriter, because screenwriters tend to hate for obvious reasons, auteur theory, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it gives all this credit to directors or supposed writer directors and leaves out, you know, you know, the influence of of the, the screenwriter, who's usually the person who comes up with the first iteration. So, you know, screenwriters clearly have a vested interest in hating. And so that might be a good reason why Jack Fincher. That might be sort of like, um, what do you call it? Solidarity. <laughs> yeah. A kind of a kind of solidarity. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Okay. Um, you know, and Orson Welles did have a habit of pissing oh. off so many people. <laughs> he really has, you know, a, a, you know, just a, a maniacal ego, uh, you know, so there's a lot of people who, who react to him badly. Um, 
But at any rate, um, so the so you're watching Mank. Okay. For me, of course, I have an absolutely morbid interest in that era of, you know, of Hollywood, 30s, 40s, basically. I know way too much. Mm-hmm. I'm way too invested <laughs> in, in Herman and his brother Joe Mankiewicz. So I'm like probably the person who knows too much to really enjoy this because <laughs> the fictionalizing part is so maddening. Because, you know, I'm watching things that I know about and I'm like, there's no way. It's most most obviously. And, and by the way, there's like 50 sites. If you want to if you want to find out what's true and what's false, I, there, there had to have been 20 things that came up immediately on Google. So it's being covered very thoroughly by, you know, reviewers, journalists. What are the what are the portions of, of, of Mank that that are factual and what are totally departures? But the biggest departure is that Mankiewicz was furious at um at at what um, at the way uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst, newspaper tycoon, who who was hugely influential among on studio heads, Hollywood studio heads like Louis B. Mayer, um, they decide to um, kneecap Upton Sinclair, who's a socialist running for um, California governor in 1934, mm-hmm. and um, th- and they they bring Mankiewicz into this as someone who a stray remark to to a production head, Irving Thalberg, leads to these movies that do in fact get made. They're smear campaign movies that that are that are meant to destroy Upton Sinclair's. Um, um, a bid for governor, and those were made. And then they're really fascinating films. You know, they're they're transparent to us now, but they really did have a big impact. So supposedly Mankiewicz knows about this, and that's some of the motivation for why he goes after Hearst. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Hearst is the um, uh, the real life figure that you know everyone kind of knew even then and still know was the model for the Kane character and you know, Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane. That's not a flattering portrait. <laughs> so um, that that's supposed to be the big motivator that 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 the ult- that ultimately motivates Mankiewicz to take a kind of screenwriter's revenge on Hearst. It's none of it's true. <laughs> Mankiewicz was not involved in this thing that did happen, this smear campaign. It did happen. Okay, but then why the hell Jack Fincher, I don't know what, where, where politically he stood himself, I don't know, was he socialist? Like Jack Fincher himself. But why he made Mank a kind of this pretty radical, I mean, fairly appealing figure in this? Mankiewicz was, you know, probably not all that political, but he certainly, I mean, maybe interested in politics, but he certainly leaned to the right. He was anti-unionist, okay. for example. <laughs> he was completely scornful of, of like the idea of this, of the screenwriters guild i thought it was idiotic you know and you know his brother joe was definitely to the right and in fact ironically um helped write stuff to to sink upton sinclair's (laughs) campaign for governor so if he leaned anyway he leaned to the right though he was very anti-fascist and and it is true this is also in the movie that he helped a lot of people um though i don't think a whole village but he but he helped a lot of germans get out um of uh germany ahead of the nazis and he helped support them and get them jobs and funnel money to them when they were in California. So he was really great about that. But yeah, he was by no means a socialist or a lefty. But but I didn't fully understand even that German line. So he, he Mankiewicz, uh, Mankiewicz, I can't I don't know, Mankiewicz, I, I think Mankiewicz, yeah, Mankiewicz. He comes from like German Jews. Yes. Like immigrant German Jews. Yes. But he helped just like the... Uh, anti-Hitler anti-Hitler Germans to get out of Germany yes. it has nothing even to do with Jews right I, they might have many of them been Jewish but they probably were I wouldn't be surprised there were people who were fleeing Nazi Germany so it for, be a, for all kind of different reasons yeah. right because it yeah. didn't seem like he it, it didn't seem like that it was uh, about Jews because in the film they showed just German woman who is like so grateful. Yeah, they they sort of efface that. But my mm-hmm. my guess would be he was probably helping German Jews. Yes, his father Franz, well, and his mother as well. I forget her name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were they were emigres from Germany, of course, okay. from way before. But all I'm saying that the film, if I mean, I'm, if a film made it very vague, what, what the yes. hell's going on? Weirdly vague, considering that that one of his passions was he was super anti Hitler. <laughs> Um, and in fact, we tried to get a movie made um, that was that was just definitely directly anti-Hitler to the point that the studios wouldn't make it because it was early, early enough on that they were still trying to keep lines of, of you know, import and export of films open mm-hmm. to Germany, which they kept going scandalously late in the day, even after so much bad stuff was known and they should have cut it off. They didn't. Um, so, yeah, his movie never got made. So he that was an area that he was very passionate about. But you're right. It gets all vague. Um in the in the movie, they don't get into the distinct 
the distinct Mm-mm. character of uh, is he helping German Jews escape, which in fact I'm, I'm assuming he is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, yes. So politically, he's all over the place, but wherever you know, and leaning to the right, leaning Republicans, conservative. But at any rate, this it's it's totally made up, and presumably it's just because I assume at least this is what other people are speculating. Jack Fincher just wanted some definite thing that would be the final reason why uh, Mankiewicz would go out of his way to skewer Hearst. I, that, to me, that makes no sense. You know, Mankiewicz's whole persona was going to lead him to skewer someone like Hearst. He was very yeah. sardonic. He was had been a, one of those tough newspaper reporters um, from, you know, the, the, from the from the 1920s who, you know, Ben Hecht was a friend. He's the one who brings Ben Hecht out to Hollywood with that famous telegram. You know, millions are to be grabbed out here um, and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. That very famous quotable tele- telegram went to went to Ben Hecht. They were both, in other words, those very tough, hard-bitten, telling truth to power, cowed by nobody um, kind of people who would exactly take pot shots at the the ultra-powerful. But apparently Fincher felt he needed some other big motivation, so he just drags that one in. But it's very odd because you're watching it going – Okay, it's already a kind of a weird thing. Most people don't care about who Herman J. Mankiewicz is, or they, they don't much care about 30s, 40s Hollywood, or they, you know, there's not going to be that huge an interest. But since there is, if you're going to do some sort of a biopic or partial biopic, why drag in the whole – it's just not necessary. Especially because <laughs> if you're following the Citizen Kane model in a way, which, as you said, it's, it's, it's kind of Citizen Mankiewicz um, in its <laughs> yeah. approach. There's certain aspects of Citizen Kane that it's clearly working into this movie about Mankiewicz. You know, if, if that's your idea, well, you know, Kane's psychology is what we're after. We're trying to figure out what Rosebud means to mm-hmm. him. If you watch Citizen Kane, that's the, that's yeah. the kind of – ginned up mystery the sled right it's the sled <laughs> i mean i'm not <laughs> but the sled just... is like what does the sled symbolize and it's like he's cut off from his mother so it all goes back to this childhood loneliness <laughs> that is what dr- supposedly drives you know and even well said yeah he, he even mocked his you know it as a kind of cheap freudian not even freudian it's so basic so psych 101 yeah. but nevertheless um, so if that's the idea, well, Mankiewicz is already built in. He he and Joe Joe were just tortured by their father. Their father was this brilliant, brilliant man. He worshipped German high culture. He winds up as a professor at City College after a long teaching career at City College in New York. He has an mm-hmm. intellectual circle that includes literally Albert Einstein. I mean, he's wow. in, in very high-flown circles. Supposedly, Joe Mankiewicz had an even longer and much more successful career than his brother Herman um, ended his life thinking of himself as a total failure and said, mm-hmm. I should have been a school teacher. Well, guess who was a school teacher? His father. They were just, they couldn't win with their father. They could never get his approval. He would belittle them and ignore them. Nothing they ever did was enough. So they were both completely tormented by this parental relationship. So you could have done a cane with it, but ugh, yeah. instead this weird yeah, it plot line. Have, because there's this sense of the citizen Kane slash Mankiewicz in this. Mankiewicz, I don't know why I can't pronounce I'm Russian. I should be able to pronounce it right. <laughs> I know you're probably pronouncing it right. <laughs> no, 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 no. My point is that somehow I can't. But um, yeah, so if you're already going there, which mm-hmm. it clearly does, it, at least it's like, do it right. As, as you say, it's actually really surprising because you bring up all these interesting facts and they're not there. Well, right. And, and it does some weird things. Like it has a flashback structure like Citizen Kane does. But in Citizen Kane, the whole fascination of it, you know, the real br- brilliant breakthrough that's attributed to Mankiewicz is that it's it's not only flashbacks of people in, in Kane's life who are telling us about Kane. So we get it all through other people's recollections of him. Yeah, multiple point of view. That's what's right. interesting. That's what's interesting. And it's there's, some of them are quite a lot of them are quite contradictory. So you keep getting a different vision of Kane. So Bernstein, again, yeah. the, the, the kind of little, the wonderful little, little character who is the most loyal to him pre- always presents him in a kind of heroic light. He never stops kind of, even though he can see at the end, you know, what's happening to Kane in a way, he still adm- always admires him. But then you, you know, you, and then you move over to what's his face. I'm forgetting the name of the Joseph Cotton character who by the end of the, you know, hates him and their friendship is broken. So you get all of these, you know, shards of memories of Cain that are deliberately meant to be incomplete 
uh, incomplete and it's in some cases completely contradictory. Um, but they don't do anything. They have a flashback structure, but it's all from Mank's point of view, Herman Mankiewicz's point of view. There's no contradictory stuff except what's, you know, just in his behaviors. But I mean, yeah. nothing is done with the flashback structure. Yeah, but then and then ultimately the weirdest thing, and even for me who doesn't know much about all this, and I'm not even mm. a fan of Wells or any, any one of this, is like then Citizen Kane is an original formally and in many other ways mm-hmm. film that is inventive. Yeah. While this film is seems kind of... <laughs> no, it's just like a weird, super expensive, obviously retrograde, yeah. some kind of like a character assassination slash glorification of I guess screenwriter and it's really weird and formally so banal that you would think at least if you're just doing something interesting formally that can be that can be something right but um, but no, yeah, it's it's good. I, I didn't think about it. Yeah, all the flashbacks. It's like mm-hmm. one point of view. It's just his memories. Um, well, and the, just the insistence on doing it in, in black and white, which, you know, apparently that was a big, we, we will do it. And, you know, most, most companies hate when you do that because most mm-hmm. people don't like to watch black and white anymore. And in this case, for a good reason. I mean, this the people who are reviewing this in terms of praise, all are saying how great the black and white looks. I thought it looked at the, the first thing I hated was I'm like, this is the worst use of black and white of ever seen go watch citizen kane if you want to see the gorgeous mm-hmm. state-of-the-art 1941 what you can do with black and white film beautiful no one can take away from what is achieved visually in citizen kane it's so gorgeous and you know toland and wells even invent some things that nobody had done yet they clearly are just determined to almost catalog what can you do with cinema in 1941 and <laughs> then you look at this completely banal use of black and white it yeah. seems flatly lit in most scenes it's badly composed i was just like what do you what do you do? <laughs> Why evoke it if you can't do it? And instead, guess what are some of the things Fincher does to evoke 1941? I don't know if you even noticed. Theatrical acting. Well, there's that. Yeah, there's sort of heightened acting. But there's mm-hmm. also literally formal effects that are added. Like like there's these – when they there were going to be real changes when you were projecting old films. You'd get all, uh, kind of circles that would pop up that were supposed to be almost subliminal that would signal it was time to change the reel for the projectionist oh. in the booth. He includes them. And I saw them and I'm like, I, I thought it was a mistake at first because it's so pointless. And you even hear the little sound that they made. They made a slight, slight pop noise. And I was just like, what? And then I was like, what are you doing? And then I had to read about it later that he was like, he was so impassioned about evoking it that he included these yeah. things that are like pointless. That you're either not going to see them at all, which is most people, or you're going to see them and think, what the hell is that? <laughs> there was some sort of weird flaw in the transmission of this <laughs> digital code. What happened? Um, and it's not, it's meaningless. There's no reason to do it. It does nothing for anyone. So it's that kind of irritating focus on things that don't matter and aren't going to have any kind of big impact. It was just maddening reading about reading about Fincher's idea of what he's doing. It's just like, what do you, man? <laughs> Really, so really, and, not and not adding know, like, up. It, not at all. It's just it, almost worse than his other attempts at like formalism. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm curious. Do you know like so when the Citizen Kane was made, um, mm-hmm. the color color already existed because Gone with the Wind, yes. Gone with oh, the yeah. Wind, I think was called. So it was like a deliberate decision, right? Do you know why? Well, not. Yeah. Color was super expensive and super onerous. Okay, and by in 1941, they're still doing Technicolor, which requires a spe- an enormous, mm-hmm. huge camera that's special, and the special techs came with it, and everything about it was more expensive. It. So you usually only used black and white; still dominated. You only used color when it was going to be worth the expense to create a fantastic spectacle. So they tended to use it on things like Wizard of Oz, a fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of musical extravaganza, or a historical epic like Gone with the Wind. So you tried to be very sparing with your color and make it part of knowing it was going to raise your budget by, I forget, 20%, something big. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the default was black and white. So, you know, and RKO really specialized in a lot of, you know, gorgeous black and white stuff. So I'm sure and I'm sure, you know, Wells was perfectly delighted because he seemed to have been influenced by the German expressionists, you know, and he loved John Ford and John Ford was this master of the black and white film. So I think I think he just said, we're just going to make the most gorgeous (laughs) tribute to black and white film that ever was. Mm hmm. But in this case, so Mank actually is it digitally shot black and white. As far as I know, it's digital. That's digital black that's and white. the weirdest decision. Yeah, 
It doesn't even look good. I don't know what people are talking about. There's a couple of scenes where they try something. You know, the the scene of at the at the Trocadero when they're having the party for the election of 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 uh, Merriman versus um, um, Sinclair with Merriman, of course, winning. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Mankiewicz did not attend, even though he's attending in this. Again, that's all, it's all made up. I mean, the the party was real. They really did hold the party. Um, but anyway, so they try mood lighting in that, but none of it strikes you. None of it's evocative. No. Whereas the first thing you notice in Citizen Kane, I think even then, you know, the big wow was just cinematographers were over the moon. They were all watching the movie over and over again going, oh my God, this is just the most astounding looking film ever. It had a huge influence on film noir um, because there was so many, such a brilliant use of mood, light, and shadow, just really ultra dramatic um, compositions, just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Um, so it yeah, really yeah. is disappointing. You're sitting there with Mank going, you're doing black and white no favors because you're if you're not you're not showing what it can do. And most people aren't interested in black and white as a great aesthetic experience. They don't give a shit anymore. So it's it's a little. It's, a, it's just an odd project in every way where you keep going. I'm also reading great praise for like the, the way it evokes old Hollywood. And I'm sitting there going, it doesn't evoke old Hollywood well at all. I just thought it did nothing to convey the, the, the kind of wild and insane atmosphere of the studio system. Which, like, yeah, you, there was nothing wild there. I mean, the, the, the wildest they get is they, they have that story conference early on. All the guys are in the room shouting, including Mankiewicz and, mm-hmm. and the, and the, and the, Person, the typist is is stripped to the waist. All she's got is nipple right. pasties on, and it's clearly supposed to show. Wow, weren't they decadent? And you're just like, it does nothing. Or the banquet scene where all the all it's supposed to be all the top people around this huge banquet table, and they're all dressed as circus people. <laughs> but it doesn't have any impact. I'm t- no, no impact at all. I mean, watch Barton Fink, the Coen Brothers, can yeah. really get how crazy Hollywood was. It was insane. And they really use like the studio head is the best portrayal of how nuts Hollywood was. <laughs> Michael Lerner plays the studio head who just And that stays with you, yeah. You would never forget it. It induces no. writer's block in Barton Fink, at least to a large extent, because the guy's so insane and the uh, the rhetorical onslaught is so crazy and it's so mercurial. So the studio head that goes from total bathos, you know, he kneels to Barton Fink and says he worships the writer. He kisses the bottom of his shoe. <laughs> but then he turns on him and starts screaming at him and cursing him. And then he's so crude, you can't believe it. And then suddenly it's all this lofty talk of aesthetic. It just And, it just, and it's just seamless. It just moves from one to the other. So you've got paralyzed Barton Fink in the chair just going, ah, uh, unable to utter a word. It's a beautiful, beautiful portrait of the insanity. The just insanity that reigned. And supposedly that's based on Louis B. Mayer, um, who's portrayed in the movie as the, you know, the representative bad guy studio head. And it's so badly done that they don't capture anything of what Mayer was like. Mayer was famous because he would do exactly that. He'd bring people into his office and he'd do these huge melodramatic performances. He, he could f- cry rivers of tears. He could faint dead away on cue. <laughs> he also could go into these profane rages. He did exactly this kind of mer- mercurial, what, mentally breaking people down and cowing them. He was, you know, people talked about him as the greatest actor in Hollywood. And what, what, how do they portray him in Mank? He's, he looks like he's some little office clerk, this little angry yeah. office clerk. He's just this little guy with spectacles who looks pissed off and seems to have no power. God, Mayer had too, so much power, he was terrifying. And it's just like watching it, just going, you just don't get Hollywood. How can you not get Hollywood? I mean, this is what you're studying. And you're in now. Yeah, but there's something about Fincher. He, I think, was for a number of years, uh, like, commercials guy. Yeah. And there's something about him. It, I'm not trying to look down on that, like, as a rule. Mm-hmm. But overall, there's a, still some sense of him not being, not having the spark or, or anything like that. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm not a fan, even though I do no, think no. Zodiac is a pretty good movie. Um, but he did, you know, the, what the Curious Wait, which Case. one was good? I liked I liked um, Zodiac. Oh, I like Zodiac too. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that seems true. to stand out. But I'm not what a huge about fan. Of- seven, seven, I guess was okay. Uh, it was. I, mean, I was. I was never yeah, crazy about Seven. Know. And he did the curious case of Benjamin Button. He can never be forgiven. <laughs> oh God, that's him. Oh, <laughs> but I, then I he did Fight Club, which it. had some good things about it. Um, 
we know people who are huge fans, but I, I was never a huge fan. Um, he did Social Network. He did, you know, he's super successful and considered great, but eh, I've I never been know. a fan. To me, he's some kind of OCD, fairly boring, uh, some sort of like should have been ad executive or I don't know, like the way, the way he holds himself, how he talks and how his movies usually look to. Gone Girl was horrible. I don't oh, know. I hated anyway. Gone Girl. And but, again, everyone but, loved that. Oh, God. I yeah, that so much. Oh. I hated that. But, you know, actually, it's good you brought, obviously, Barton <laughs> Fink. It's, I mean, there are clearly not parallels. I mean, Barton well, Fink well, is there are, just... Though. I mean, because Barton Fink is one of the one of the you know one of the great writers of New York City who has a very snob attitude toward right. Hollywood, thinks it's beneath him. Comes out. I mean, it actually, Mankiewicz came out in the late twenties, but most mm-hmm. of the people that he knew who were his peers wound up coming out in the thirties. You know, like Dorothy Parker. <laughs> you know, so many people got so much money to come from New York City to Hollywood and and really despised the work. And Mankiewicz, for all his massive success from the get-go, he was great at this. Um, he always thought it was lowly. He always despised mm-hmm. it. And that was part of, you know, arguably the the feeling that he never lived up to his father's expectations. He became <laughs> like a colossal drunk, like even among drunks in Hollywood, which that's a, a pretty epic scale. He was considered out of control. <laughs> and and as a gambler, he would get, he he just lost fortunes, just compulsive gambling. Yeah, I don't know. To me, I guess Gary Oldman. He's what he considered a great actor. He is he's great. not even yeah, okay, but he's not even good at in, in this. At least I don't know. It's not compelling. Uh, when I remember Barton Fink and um, mm-hmm. you know the kind of what is it? It's sort of like based on Faulkner, right? Mayhew character, yes, the Mayhew the older character. Yes. That's a much better drunk. It's actually more pathetic, more convincing. Yes. And uh, it gets the contradictions when when you yeah. first meet Mayhew who again is modeled on Faulkner. What's the guy's the actor's name? Is a great actor, John. How am uh, I forgetting? Can't He's really good. Um, Maho- anyway, Mahoney. Yeah, John Mahoney. He's kneeling in a in a bathroom, and Barton he sees him in the stall kneeling, and he's puking his guts up in the toilet, and then comes out, and he's all natally dressed in a perfect suit with a perfect pocket hanger, and he and he says apologies for the odor <laughs> in a super southern accent, and it's beautiful, exactly, mm-hmm. and kind of nails it way better than at the climactic banquet scene in Mank, yeah, when Mankiewicz's throat finally pukes on the floor, and apparently that's based on a real event. It wasn't at, it wasn't at San Simeon, which is the Hearst Castle. Uh, kind mm-hmm. of place that's the model for Xanadu in, in Citizen Kane. Um, but he was at another dinner party and he puked and then he said one of his, he, he was apparently brilliantly witty and would just come up with these things and his host was really into fine dining and etiquette and was horrified and he turned and said, don't worry, the, the white wine came up with the fish. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a good line to say after you've just puked and ruined a dinner <laughs> So, they have, they have Oldman say the line but it has no, it's so badly directed that even a great actor like Oldman, you could just see yeah, him it's flailing. Directed, right? He's flailing around, fighting to have have an impact to make the movie cohere around him, and he's just getting undercut. I swear that scene is so badly shot. And I read somewhere yeah. that there was a huge number of takes, and um, and Fincher, you know, lavished all this time to get this scene right, and it's the worst I scene. Mean, in the I read movie. something like hundred takes, something like this. Yes, I, if if they don't exaggerate, what the hell? People dressed as circus people, the, the social embarrassment. It's it's trying to convey this disaster when Mankiewicz, who had been a big favorite of Hearst's. Um, always, Hearst was always inviting him to San Simeon and Marion Davis, his mistress and, and, you know, a top actor for at least a while. Um, they loved him. He was a great favorite at parties because he was so funny. Um, this is where he finally alienates them. Um, and Mm -hmm. so it's this big, it's supposed to be this climactic scene and it is so plotting and the shot, the camera always seems like it's in the wrong place for the entire scene so that you never get the impact of anything. Anything. It's so bad. Why do you done. think Fincher can't evoke anything? I mean, in this, in this case, in why this do case? you think? I mean, nothing at all. Yeah, it didn't. I mean, you know too much. It did nothing to you. I know little, but it did nothing to me too. <laughs> I know. What's the sweet spot? <laughs> okay, for whom, as you yeah, asked in the beginning, for whom this film even like it works. <laughs> made, yeah. I think. So yeah. I, I don't know. Do you think it's a complete failure of, I don't know, what imagination? I, I am actually completely confused because he's such a celebrated you know, director mm. and yada yada, but um, I don't. I don't understand. He can't. He can't I would do say a yes. Thing. I would say yeah. He he can't seem to 
to to think about the era and the people in it and the and the guy at the center of it, Mankiewicz. He can't seem to mm-hmm. think of them in any way that su- suggests he under he understands them or the fascination of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so everything gets blanded out and everything is kind of boring and literal, but it doesn't have any emotional impact. It's amazing. And I did kind of like, I mean, we can probably go into what you hated about all the um, sort of um, fictionalization of stuff, but Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever, even non-fictional things are bad (laughs) too. But one thing I kind of liked, what's his name? He's a Shakespearean British actor who plays um, Hearst. Oh, Charles Dance. Charles Dance. Mm -hmm. He's... He's sort of good, but I don't know. He's not doing much. He's sort of understated. Well, right? and he's got that great lizard eye thing that mm-hmm. has made him a wonderful villain for a long, long time. Yeah. So, and he's a kind of colorful character. So you're, you're always like, oh, there's Charles Dance. And he's do- he doesn't mm-hmm. have to do much of anything but stare <laughs> stare coldly and villainously at, uh, at Mankiewicz, <laughs> you know. And, and, then yeah. he, and then he, but you're right. I think he makes more, it's terrible to say this, but in that scene, he has more of an impact than mm-hmm. Oldman as Mankiewicz. Which is shocking. I mean, Oldman's a great, great actor. <laughs> and he just seems like, to me, like he's kneecapped every which way in this film. I mean, one thing that, that people who love the film are really praising is they're saying the, the scenes with Marion Davies are especially good. And Amanda, what's her name? Seyfried. Seyfried, plays, yeah. Plays her. Um, because supposedly they were friends. They were they were bound together through alcohol, by the way, which would have been a good thing to bring out. She was a she was a well-known lush, but the castle was Hearst Castle or San Simeon was dry. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all these puritanical things ironically enforced at San Simeon. No one who wasn't married were allowed to sleep together, even though Hearst was not married to Marion Davies and was certainly allowed to sleep with her. So yeah, there was all this kind of, and it was dry. You weren't allowed to drink, supposedly to prevent her <laughs> from drinking. All the alcohol had been removed, but apparently there was somehow a secret bar in San Simeon and she would bring she would bring um, Mankiewicz to it so they could get tanked and talk, which would have been like, you're like, why is that not in there? How did she manage yeah. to have a secret bar? Well, admittedly, there's like a million rooms in the middle of her, of San Simeon. You know, so it's just like, why? That's evocative. Instead, they just have them wandering around outside on the grounds for one scene. And behind them are clearly CGI zoo animals wandering <laughs> around. And you're like, yeah, that's the inspiration. All right. For Xanadu, which has its own zoo, but it's doing nothing. They're clearly CGI giraffes or whatever. What's Xanadu? Xanadu is the is the Charles Foster Kane mansion that he builds that is never finished in Citizen Kane. Oh, I can't remember the name. Okay. Yeah, that's it's called Xanadu, Xanadu in, in mm-hmm. the movie. It's called San Simeon when Hearst was living in it. And now it's called Hearst Castle when you want to go pay a little money and tour it. <laughs> have, you, have you been? Um, yes. Exactly. Okay, because I somehow never, I mean, I drove by somewhere. It's somewhere fun, be because it's so insane. It's just an insane, insane place. Yeah. So I mean, it, it does yeah. have the crazy kind of well, lavish. It's totally got the crazy. 100% got the crazy. So it's worth worth going to see, you know, the like pools that have been des- just designed to be like, I don't know, Greek temple. Everything's over, over designed, over lavished. And he really did loot. The, you know, the castles of Europe and have it all, sh- tons of it shipped back. So he has all this mismatched architecture from like old churches. And it's just every, every room is just like, wow, but what the hell are you going for here? It's just extraordinary. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it becomes this nightmare in symbolic place because it's always unfinished. It's never lived in. It's never comfortable to live in. You know, it, it, make, it has all these great uses in Citizen Kane. In the movie, in this movie, you can't You, can't, you get no any, sense like, of it. There's nothing at all around this. Because what the way you're talking about, it, it's like that that would be interesting. <laughs> and yes. I, I would add the insane element because it is insane. Again, the camera work would have been your friend here. If you would like called out evocative qualities or again, find the secret bar or but instead just to have the zoo animals wandering around in the background. It's so bizarre. It's still lame. Ultimately, <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, giraffes are definitely CGI. They were not even. Uh, yeah, <laughs> didn't they get real giraffes? I know. I know. Just one Just real pathetic. giraffe would have made up for all those all those hours of expensive CGI work. One real giraffe. <laughs> okay, the weird thing. I mean. Now, thinking more about it, I, it's definitely, I guess, where I stand. After all of this supposed uh, kind of like glorification, more, more or less, of Mank and his genius mm-hmm. in this film, you know, again, might be because of Charles 
dance or or the way it's written who knows mm-hmm. so her character actually <laughs> comes on top mm-hmm. he's almost more there's some kind of quality of <laughs> almost dignity about him mm-hmm. and uh, in the film that makes him sort of ultimately then not an interesting kind of target almost for the you know for the suppose like the, the attack in mm-hmm. the citizen kane that mank supposedly was writing i don't know the whole thing is all very confusing because shouldn't he be a bit more than like a hateful or <laughs> some kind of like hateful character which this film doesn't really portray or evoke at all yeah, the casting is weird. Again, there's so many weird casting choices. It's not even just the, the Louis B. Mayer seems completely wrongly cast. The Joe Mankiewicz. I mean, your impression of the you know, who's the brother, you know, who comes to visit mm-hmm, him and yeah. the younger brother. He was he was one of the most, you know, considered a big beguiler and charmer. And he had one of the most legendary love lives in the world. He slept with almost every star that he ever worked with. He had major <laughs> affairs with Judy Garland and Linda Darnell and I think Joan Crawford. And he just mowed through, them, <laughs> you know, and he but he really could like, I think, entrance people. And there's no sense of it whatsoever. You get this stiff, stiff guy named Tom Pelfrey wandering around and you're like who you know and there was a huge brotherly rivalry you know herman brings his his worshipful younger brother out teaches him the ropes and then his younger brother starts eclipsing him to have a much bigger career and they're and they're bitter rivals really they're really trying to top each other for as long as herman could could hold out and none of this comes across <laughs> none of it you're just like oh yeah I'm, I'm getting nothing off off of these people there's so much of 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 weird casting where it's like just the wrong choice where it doesn't it doesn't seem to evoke what you wanted <laughs> what you wanted i so over and over i was sitting there just going but why why did you like, like john houseman the guy who keeps coming into mm-hmm. the to the Victorville Ranch um, to try to to, to to try to keep him off the you know keep him on pace, keep Mankiewicz writing and all that. You know, that is true. I mean, he did he was at a Victorville Ranch. Hold up, they were trying to control his drinking so he would write. He did have a broken leg. He did have a nurse and a secretary. All that's true. The circumstances of the writing, but supposedly Hausman was a really formidable, if snooty guy. But they instead they cast this kind of nervous bow-tied nothing who comes in and kind of natters <laughs> and then leaves and has no impact that's not houseman <laughs> and so it's just like again you're just like why would you cast that guy and direct him to act in that way that's just makes no sense he even supposedly contributed to the script in some meaningful way and you're just like yeah this is again why why and i read something about it that there was this concern that they didn't want they didn't want to further muddy the waters by having houseman seem like he had anything meaningful to do with the script so they just make Hausman this joke, you know, and how it was Hausman and, and Wells for the Mercury Theater together. They accomplished a tremendous lot. Again, he was a really formidable guy. So it's just these weird choices where you're just like, OK, so now nothing is coming up across from from all of these choices. You wind up with a big a big nothing. You're not it's not a tribute to Mankiewicz, really. It's not conveying at all, you know, the, uh, 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 an interesting sense of old Hollywood. It's it's made up a bunch of shit that isn't true. It's interesting <laughs> in and of itself. That whole governor's race is really interesting, but this it's not. It has nothing to do with Mankiewicz. So you're just it's head spinning throughout. Though I thought you might have liked the Victorville part because Yasha lived actually lived in Victorville. Yeah, I was thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah, and how the Victorville Ranch was a real thing for Hollywood, but then I think. I think nothing like that even there's no remnants of that there because at this point it's like a fully kind of like poverty ridden suburb with um, half of the smack mansions, cheap houses that were built before the financial crisis are either abandoned or I don't know even what's going on because I stayed there a number of times Mm -hmm. and it, I mean, I don't want to say it's scary, but it's depressing and scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some of it is scary when you walk around, it's too empty, it's just, um, I don't know. Lots of empty houses except for like two, (laughs) maybe. I mean, yeah, when like 2009, I think 2010, definitely it was rather sketchy. And I think someone, maybe just kids, I don't know, I guess Mm. hooligans, maybe teenagers tried to uh, break into Yasha's kind of house. I think last for a few days, came back, there was something weird with the window. I don't, yeah, so it's it's a very sketchy kind of place. Um, And uh, it's weird because, again, I... 
I'm very kind of ignorant about this. And I started reading about Victoral Ranch. I'm like, whoa, this was like a Hollywood <laughs> location. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is pretty. It's um, it's actually a pretty desert there. Not um, not like Joshua Tree or mm-hmm. uh, Palm Springs or the, the more famous um, kind of Hollywood get- getaways. But definitely Victoral is, um, it still has like a nice chunk of Mojave. Have, mm-hmm. have you ever been there no, when you lived there? Mm-mm. Yeah, because again, it wasn't. I think it's not. It hasn't been a destination for yeah. It sounds like know, now decades. That the days of you know anyone wanting to go there, repair there, but to even, write even or before something. that, yeah. even probably night. That's been like long All gone. Long. I imagine. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like. Even though, again, it's not like the worst place. I guess if you do have some money, you, you can have a ranch there. Probably not a worse place to live. But okay, but uh, movie wise, the most interesting thing for mm-hmm. me because uh, <laughs> I keep repeating, uh, I know so little. Do you know much about the whole Jack uh, Fincher character? and him been driven to write this and then I don't other than the few things in interviews that I read I didn't see a lot of much why what's the story it's mystery right? oh. I don't understand why this movie exists why the hell <laughs> well clearly because I'm a name director who is bankable you know kept bringing it up until people finally said oh hell go ahead and make it I assume but you mean why Jack Fincher obsessed one of the reasons I get you already brought up well he was sort of like a screenwriter journalist and mm-hmm. that's was he was partial somehow interested in this uh, supposed conflict. I don't know. And mm-hmm. he took the side of Mank and wanted to, and then embellished a bunch of, mm-hmm. <laughs> bunch of things and just somehow wanted this kind of fairy tale story to exist. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, it's really a mystery. I don't understand. Cause there's like, there's so, you know, the movie is also like two and a half hours. There's nothing compelling. It was hard to watch. I'm just, I don't know. The writing is not that great. Uh, the little things that Mank, the funny mm-hmm. kind of lines that he said that really he did say, like mm-hmm. they're historically true. They all kind of like <laughs> jumped together. Yeah, and exactly. It, like he just was spewing every famous line he ever said in one tight little Yeah, yeah span it's like he time. said it in a span of a few months. <laughs> Right, right, everything right. funny he, he ever said. So the whole thing, and and there was clearly there were some some definitely good lines. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I don't I don't really understand the appeal at all. And I would probably like to understand. I just I just don't. Well, and that is the mystery of the movie because you while you're watching it, you're like, what are you? It's so opaque emotionally that to me, I was yeah. just like, what are you trying? What are you trying to convey? I mean, in in the end, it really does give gives the win to Mank because it ends it's tr- apparently it's trying to be very poignant it ends with the interview mm-hmm. with Mankiewicz where he's talking about having won he didn't attend the Academy Awards neither did Wells mm-hmm. and they 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 win co-writing you know which it means Wells didn't win that that fight you know Mankiewicz did yeah. get at least co-credit and then he says again a line he said that his acceptance speech Mankiewicz says his acceptance speech would have been something like I'm happy to accept in the absence of Mr. Wells, this Academy Award, because the screenplay was actually written in the absence of Mr. Wells, something. It's yeah. But I mean, it's a clever line. Um, and, and then there's a kind of faded quality of newsreel footage on him, filming him saying this. And then you get the little end note that says, you know, he, he, he doesn't live that much longer. He, he drinks himself to death at a very young age. Um, yeah. But that this is this is the triumphant moment of his of his life um, that he gets credit for Citizen Kane and but you're still like I don't know what I'm <laughs> what am I what did I, oh, I just what watched am I watched and what hours. was I supposed to get out of this and what was supposed to be the emotional impact of this whereas with Citizen None. Kane the marvel of it is is very very clear I mean it just seems to me it is I mean it's 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 kind of a it's got a kind of rich impact um that even if you mock the idea that rosebud is a sled there's something wonderful about in the end the reporter never finding out what it is and saying well but we get to see you know in the sled being burnt with all of these other you know an endless warehouse that's so big the camera shot that goes up to the sky can't can't capture all the stuff that Mm -hmm. that kane has bought in his life and so the smoke of 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 the beloved sled rosebud that symbolizes his symbolizes his lost childhood that ends when his family comes into a huge fortune he's packed off um, under the guardianship of a banker as as you know, as uh, Wells said this is the, the story of a, of a of a kid who was raised by a bank and that's what's wrong with him he loses <laughs> his beloved mother um, and he's raised by a banker uh, <laughs> and things don't go well um, but at any rate it's a beautiful ending it's you know beautifully kind of mysterious and I tragically ironic you know that the quest is never fulfilled and even we who see what the end answer is yeah the answer is no answer 
You know, it's supposed to be about the impossibility. And they give that line, I think, to Mankiewicz, too, about like it's it's impossible even if you've got devote a whole movie to a, a human being. You can't sum up a human being. Then you could just create a, an impression. The impression of life. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's and a good line. That's a pretty good line. And you definitely get that feeling at the end. You've spent all this time with Kane. You sometimes get this this kind of little illusion that you sort of understand Kane, but you never understand Kane. You can't understand a human in this way. Is there any way to understand um, most humans? So it has it has a really nice impasse. A very nice that the ending is a real powerhouse ending. But this movie is the opposite, where it's like ah. Uh, <laughs> in the end, did you remember? I mean, I was utterly annoyed by it because as all the tricks to, to do 1940s were mostly annoying. Uh, so the acceptance, Oscar acceptance mm-hmm. speech of Wells, because he's supposedly in Rio de Janeiro shooting another mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. is done kind of like just shitty sound, like yes. it would have been 1940, mm-hmm. one, whatever, over black. And I'm like, right. whoa, <laughs> what a decision. I don't know. And ultimately, I'm already watched this movie for two and a half hours and I'm annoyed. All right. In fact, I didn't even remember that part, but you're right. I think I must have been fading out a little by that point. <laughs> oh, of course there was no camera. He's yeah. just calling in from Rio de Janeiro. Right, okay. right, right, right. Yes, where he's gone <laughs> on. Yeah, yeah. So that's how accurate and like OCD kind of true to supposedly, I guess, the well, reality. Well, true to odd things that you're like, but why be true to that? <laughs> I don't know. It's like being true to the, the real change spot. Why be true to the real change spot? It doesn't. What does it do? anyone I, that i didn't even notice i guess i should look out for oh, it. can so, you see it in- it's semi-subliminal but they it's just uh-huh. if you're paying attention and you see these again you think it's a mis- you just think it's a glitch you're like how could it be a glitch i mean the, the, he even co- had it colorized <laughs> so there's a kind of yellow in in one of the pops and it only happens a few times so i noticed it enough to notice but it was just even to me i was like what is that <laughs> can you see it in like citizen kane or really old no. movies can you actually no. spot it you would know and why did you do that then? It's not, definitely you're not seeing it in Citizen. Again, it, it, ideally, it, you'd only, only the projectionist is going to see it. You know, it's not like it's going to be like, oh, there it is. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't have been the norm. Um, so he's almost doing some kind of deconstruction. But yeah. what kind of deconstruction is that? But a kind of pointless one. You know, kind of a pointless one where you're like, because and he talked about it just naively as I just wanted to I wanted to be so true and evoke the true quality of 40s films. And I'm like, well, shoot better then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do better black and white choices. And if so, you know, I don't know. So it's a very frustrating. That's, that's a good one. It's like, I just wanted be to better. Well, shoot better. <laughs> Speaking of lines, because I wrote a few ones down, uh, mm. Louis B. Mayer in the movie, which I guess he did say in real life, right? Because a lot of things are pulled mm-hmm. uh, from like historical material. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved his line. Uh, I think he was uh, walking and talking, right? And the mm-hmm. bank is like, and his brother probably running after him. And he's uh, telling, I guess, uh, telling him about the business. And he says that this business is where the buyer gets nothing but a memory. Right. And uh, that's kind of interesting. And that that's the creator of the thing always skips the product Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you just that's the the magic and the trick Mm -hmm. which pretty insightful i mean it's i know it's not super profound but well and it especially makes sense then i mean it's actually i don't know if he actually said it but i mean that actually is right about then because then they really regarded it as a as an evanescent form like everyone went to see it while it was out but unless there was some museum revival or an unusual for a super successful film like gone with the wind they bring it out again in x number of years or whatever but most films that's why so many are lost so they didn't care anything about them they weren't preserving them strictly They, they they just thought of them as you know you consume them and then you Again, it, that's quite literally true. It exists in your memory. That's why so much early film criticism, it's all memory, memory reliance until we have VCRs. No one is getting a chance to study film, you know, in the way we can do now. They couldn't. Yeah. So, like, I remember reading early Cavell, Stanley Cavell stuff that he wrote in, I don't know, the 80s, early 80s. And you can he's, he's just, he announces, of course, I'm relying on my memory in describing this scene. And, and some of it he gets wrong. And that would never mm-hmm. happen in scholarship after a certain point. But it's because, well, you were just at the mercy. Maybe you could visit an archive. And again, the ones mm-hmm. that were considered the most important got saved. But especially because you could make money on a, on a re-release many years later. But I think most of it, they just let 
rot. <laughs> I just didn't care. So that's mm-hmm. that's actually a nice line. I hadn't even paid attention to it, but that's actually you're right. That's a good line. Yeah, this is a business where the buyer gets nothing but a memory. Yeah, I want to rephrase it for for what we had to endure. This is the film where the buyer gets nothing but wasted time. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? <laughs> I know we won't have a memory because it's so forgettable. It's just gone out of your mind. If if we hadn't had a podcast about it, I wouldn't even remember this much. (laughs) Oh, well, I think we, uh, I think we've talked it out, but I do find it ironic that, that so much commentary is about what's true and what's false. So that so many people watch this as a way to come to know something about this screenwriter that nobody's ever heard of other than people who are freaks like me. Um, And that that would be the response that now it becomes like, you know, that that's what people there the historical quality of it is what matters to people and he, uh-huh. that's exactly what he fudged all over the place so it's just it's like an, it's almost like a conversation starter about this topic about, yes exactly but i guess in this case i wonder if people are just being polite everyone's talking about this because there's nothing else to talk about right movie-wise. right it's very slim pickings right now movie wise and which is so weird let's just mark this here it is december if it was a normal non-COVID year, okay, no, you know, the late fall and r- leading up to Christmas, that's when you release all your great films because they're all mm-hmm. they want them to remember. All the production heads, studio heads, want people to remember them for Oscar consideration. So that's why you always get that fall and and, and early winter pile up of of all the supposed you know Academy Award contenders. Well, <laughs> what have we had lately? We've had this, which, you know, and again, they talk this, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, anything that they thought would have a, a, a chance, but there's hardly anything. Like, usually there's an onslaught. Usually this is my busiest time because I'm reviewing things. So I suddenly have to watch a million things. Even when I'm looking ahead to like Christmas Day releases, which is, you know, a coveted spot. It's Wonder Woman. Um, there's a new Pixar film called Soul. And it's otherwise, it's just, it's just a, it's just, it's like an abandoned plane. It's so wide open. There's like hardly any major films being released just because, I don't know. I guess they've just decided they're not even going to bother with that typical like run up to the Academy Awards because it's such a bizarre year because of the pandemic, I'm assuming. Yeah, and I forgot there's some kind of new rules also for the awards. Do you even have to release it on time? By release, I mean like on streaming platform. Right. Does it even have to come out by you know December 31st? I don't even or know. What? You need to. I think oh, there's some kind of let's look changes next time. They might have changed it, but why? I don't okay. know. But yeah, and that adds also to this whole. You know, I, I guess you've been following right HBO Max, Warner Brothers, yes. Warner Brothers deal, man. I don't know. I guess so it will change movies forever. Yeah, that, <laughs> that if you're just going to release every their whole slate. On yeah. what if theaters are open, they'll play in theaters as well. But at the same time, they'll be they'll be on HBO Max. So basically, the theaters most likely would die. Within it's clearly years. placing a bet that that we're seeing the end of an era, and theaters probably aren't going to make it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's gotten so it's gotten so bad with movies that it. You know, I, I'm going to be one of the people who miss it because, but again, I'm a fanatic and I'm old school. Will people really miss it that much? I don't even know anymore. It just feels like, isn't it kind of over? It has a very over feeling to it, but maybe that's just me. Hmm, no, there's an over feeling. I mean, I'm not, I'm not such a fanatic. There is some kind of over feeling, not even in terms of movie theater, mm-hmm. actually about the movies, movies. itself. No, that that's important. what I mean, that's too. Over. Ah, that's what you meant. Yeah, not even the movie theater. So, yeah, there is a weird sense because I'm trying to sort of make some I sort know. of movies. So it's a bizarre. I acknowledge the kind of, actually, the, the causes of this while at the same time barely able or interested mm-hmm. to watch any movie. And it feels, yeah, it's just... I, I bet there are some um, philosophers of media or something. Oh, there definitely are. I've seen a couple of pieces already of people saying, hmm, I think it might be over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but I don't even know why, because yeah. it's definitely not just because of the so-called like short attention span because mm-hmm. of YouTube. No, not just that. That might be contributing just the nature of internet and media and how it's like all favors kind of. <laughs> it's almost like the formal. imagination that went into making movies, like yeah. the format itself has died. Or is or is dying very very fast. Definitely dying. And then the thing that seems to be surviving better and almost like adapting better. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's most of it is also um, kind of just slack. But I feel like almost like the TV format, the no- novelization of things, mm-hmm. that is a bit more has a yeah. better survival. 
chance. Oh, you can definitely feel that the interest has shifted. That is really true. Yes. So, but again, I don't, I don't know why. It's something about also the formats, you know, because mm-hmm. everyone now lured into making TV from the movies, mm-hmm. you know, and now it's not beneath you uh, when you're like a good writer or director. Mm-hmm. But there's, I don't think it's just the network money. There's something else about the format of that that is somehow a bit more... We might even be looking at some sort of composite like Small Axe, which is, you know, Steve McQueen essentially doing, I forget how many, five movies in a row between an hour five and two movies. hours long. And the first one is called Mangrove is, is two hours plus, I think. And then the next one is, I don't know, an hour, a little under an hour and a half. But anyway, it's roughly five movies, but it's it's presented in miniseries form. But five movies within what span of time? Like fast? It's like every week, yeah. Ah. Yeah, weekly. Coming that's out weekly. interesting. I oh, should... I know. I watched it. I didn't know. When I went to watch the first one, I had no idea that it was essentially five movies. <laughs> and Where I'm like, do what? you see that? <laughs> oh, I can't remember. And I just reviewed it. It hasn't, uh, okay. it hasn't come out yet. I can't remember what it appeared on. It's one of the major. It's either Netflix or... Okay. Was, I'll um, look it up. I mean, it's sort of interesting. I guess only proves our point. There's something going Something's on. Something's going on. Because <laughs> that's what I, what I thought. I thought that's so goddamn much work to do five movies. <laughs> that I was just like, what is Steve McQueen? Who's, you know one of the bankable, you know, mm-hmm. more recent than Fincher, certainly, but one of the definite success story directors. Why yeah. would, Why would he want to do I mean, obviously, he's interested in the, in the subject matter, but it just seems like five to do five movies is so brutal that I, I was amazed when I realized that's what I was looking at to come out weekly. That's so much. Gun. I think I found it. Small Axe. Small Axe. Is it that? That's it. And it's okay. Prime, Amazon. So Steve McQueen. Yep, five original. Well, that might be the present slash future. Yeah, I guess. it's like straddling the line, but it seems to be in- indicative of people are thinking in other ways for sure. And it yeah. do- you're right. It doesn't seem like just the pandemic, though. The pandemic no. rushed it. It rushed forward what was already happening, it seems like to me. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. And I guess we'll <laughs> we'll witness that. Yeah. Okay, so okay, next time we did promise we're to doing do... hidden gems for sure. Yes, and it's interesting too. We'll get into it next time. But what 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 does obscure mean? Because for you know what's obscure to some people isn't obscure to others. <laughs> so some things that I'm like, what do you mean obscure? That's a massively important and well known film. I'm suddenly like, but is it? Do people even know that film? So there's going to be a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. The concept of actually hidden gem is yeah. Like, what's uh, hidden? I guess <laughs> to who? <laughs> it's controversial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll try to somehow. <laughs> we'll navigate it yeah. to tackle that. Yeah. Okay. So next week. Next, next week. Bye.